Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Before the show, here's a shout-out to our new sponsor, Ferro Wine. Ferro Wine has been the largest wine shop in Italy since 1920. They have generously supplied us with our new t-shirt. Would you like one? Just donate 50 euros and it's all yours. Plus, we'll throw in our new book, Jumbo Shrimp Guide to International Grape Varieties in Italy. For more info, go to italianwinepodcast.com and click donate. Or check out Italian Wine Podcast on Instagram. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm pleased to have as a guest a longtime friend in the industry, Meredith May, who is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Tasting Panel and Som Journal magazines. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, give us a, a, a quick bio of how you got into the, how, how you ended up as being publisher there, uh, of these two publications. I thought it was very interesting, both stories, both Tasting Panel and Some Journal. So go back a little way, how you started and how you got to here. Well, my initial background in the media was radio. Uh, I was behind the scenes of some pretty popular disc jockeys in Los Angeles. And uh, eventually uh, started working on my own uh, as a food writer and I got a little radio show going on food and then started writing for a newspaper about food and somehow heard about this job for a magazine called Patterson's Beverage Journal. And I know you remember those days. Yes, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> it was then the Bible of the uh, of the industry in California, and it started in 1941. I didn't start there in 1941, mind you. I started there in 2000 when the, uh, the wine and spirits business was starting to grow in a very unexpected way when luxury products started really booming. So I became, uh, I kind of talked my way into being an editor, didn't know a thing about Wine of Spirits, but uh, got in there as a, as a good writer, as an editor, and eventually just started interviewing the most important people in the trade, winemakers and distillers and chiefs of industry in the, uh, in the trade. Uh, so kind of built the magazine up a little bit and went to the owner of the magazine, who was the printing company who printed the magazines, didn't know a thing about wine or spirits. And I said, why don't you give me 10% of the business and I will grow this baby. And he laughed and said, I don't give percentages to anybody. <laughs> I love it. And I said, okay, I quit. I knew I had to go over a barrel. So he said, well, what am I supposed to do? And I said, well, sell it to me. And sure enough, gave me a price. And the price basically just bought the mailing list. And people said, what the heck are you doing? You know, we don't need another print magazine. We don't need another trade magazine. There was a couple of others out there at the time. But I sure started it and uh, worked with Anthony Dias Blue, who kind of lent me his name at the time, Phone Up a Teen Magazine as wine and spirits editors so even though he didn't really work at the magazine he uh, 
he was there, support friend. And the magazine took off. And we, that was 2007. And it's grown a lot. And then uh, some journal, I remember reading some journal when it was with its former owner, and then you took it up. So that's kind of how I started pasting panel was just a, a wing and a prayer. <laughs> really? I didn't know. I didn't read those. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It was owned by David Vogels, who also had the organist's uh, journal and the dental uh, orthodontist journal. He liked wine, but couldn't figure out why nobody bought subscriptions to what's called the sommelier journal. Uh, it was an underground magazine. Well, the trade doesn't buy subscriptions, really, I got to tell you. Uh, so I already had a business model with the tasting panel of sending out free magazines and getting my money from advertising and sponsorships. So I bought the sommelier journal in 2013 with the help of my husband, who was working for Southern Glazers at the time, or Southern Wine and Spirits at the time, and uh, used my business model and went from 1,200 circulation to now over 60,000 nationally. So the magazines are thriving. Thank you very much, God. <laughs> well, and that's what I want to turn to because you're doing something that nobody else is doing. And let's cut to the chase and talk about trade communications and more specifically, trade print magazines. I mean, there's a lot have that have exited the market. Um, some have been taken over by technology companies and so forth. But for sure, tasting panel and some journal too. Um, obviously, some journal is going to a more limited audience. Um, is kind of definitive, certainly in the California market. But I think now you have a much you have a national footprint, no question, and really a focus on on, on new brands. So, how are you doing well with a print model, advertising revenue generated model that a lot of people are saying is dead? We're selling out every issue. Uh, we're getting fatter and fatter. You know, some people want to be on a diet, but not us. Uh, the magazines are full of content. You know, the ads support us. We don't sell content. We sell ads. So we're not pay to play, although, you know, we do support our advertisers. We're not writing about refrigerators and watches. We're writing about wine and spirits and water and people and food and distributors and, and you know, the industry as a whole. And each magazine has its own voice. And people want those print magazines in their hand and our we're called a requester magazine so you have to send an email or sign up somehow but we're allowed to send out uh, a certain amount of magazines to people that we figure are good you know qualified professionals but we do get tons of subscription requests from the top people in the industry and that makes me feel so good good for you congratulations so what who is the target audience Who's reading the magazine? Market audience are the wine and spirits buyers, the gatekeepers, the retailers, the restaurateurs, the food and beverage directors at hotels, and then, of course, distributors who use our magazine on the street to market the products to the buyers. So it's really their, their marketing tools for the brands. We're the guys in the white hats in the industry, guys and women. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're pro the three-tier system. We, we want to help uh, sell wine and spirits to the first decision makers. I look at the magazine as something being um, very critical to, I, I do a lot of work with brands who are coming launch in the U.S. market. And Tasting Panel is one target publication to be visible in. You're up significantly in, in both in terms of circulation and in, in ad volume. 
how are you dealing with the idea? You know, I remember the days when media people would call on me as a brand manager and I had a big budget to invest and that's kind of the way it worked. It's a little bit different now. So how do you go about selling to the people who have the ad dollars to invest? Well, because we're not just selling an ad on a page. We're offering webinars uh, to educate buyers on the brands. We're, uh, we have events that were finally starting up again, uh, you know, seminars and tastings that not that are not just in person, but they get editorial value in a future issue of the magazine. So we, we reach people on an interactive level as well as an editorial level. And we're, we're put in the people's hands where, you know, if you, if you buy a consumer magazine that has a, an ad for a, a Tuscan wine, I think it's glossed over where when we have ads in the magazine, the buyers will say, oh, I didn't know that they have a new vintage out of this. Or, oh, look, they have a 100% Sangiovese now uh, for this wine. So it's, it's looked at, the, I think the ads are looked at as critically as the editorial. But the editorial is more fun because we provide custom photography and, of course, the greatest wine writers in the world. Okay, so uh, it's all about new brands. And there's a lot of magazines that are about existing brands. Talk about why your focus is on new brands and what that offers both to the industry, to consumers, as well as the producers themselves or importers. Well, it's not just about new brands. We write about established brands, but I think what we also don't write about is library wines or collector wines because we're not consumer. The buyers need to buy wines that sell right away, as we know. And that's, you know, some of them have vertical tastings on their menu, but it's, it's, it is about telling what's happening now, what are the trends, and as hopefully the authority in the industry, uh, we can help not only talk about the trends, but set trends as well. So. New brands, we give a platform and we call them launch pads, you know, or, 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 you know, we were happy to introduce new brands. Who else is going to do it beside the people on the street selling it, you know, distributors, brokers. Uh, but here is an absolute great way of introducing to the most targeted audience you can find. So talking about new brands, I deal with them every day. They face a plethora of, of challenges. From your perspective, what kind of challenges to new brands? And we're talking, in this case, I like to focus on Italian brands and imported brands in general. Yes, sure. Let's talk about Italian wine. Of course, the, the biggest challenge is finding the, if, if you, of course, the importer. And then, then you've got to get to the distributor who's got to pay attention to you. And because they're not building brands on their own, and their sales forces have been diminished in this past year, as we know, it's very important that we're there because we're getting out to everybody. You know, we're not only getting out to individuals, but I know we have a pass along of at least two, if not three, especially on premise and at retail. So the importance for what new brands need to realize is that you have to have a voice, you have to have a story, you have to be tasted, and I guess nowadays rated and there's more and more wine shops and retail stores that are open because the restaurant predicament that we've had. So there's there's more value in being seen by the best way you can. And not, that's not through social media, I don't think, necessarily in this industry and not always hoping your distributor is 
going to get you on the shelf. Yeah, there's still a, a cadre in the industry that's of um, an older generation that, that looks at print as authentic and everything else is uh, questionable. But but thinking about new brands, so what are uh, some examples or what are the secrets of, of what some brands have done really, really well, in your opinion, to get the kind of visibility and street cred, if you will, among the trade? Well, let me tell you what I don't think works, which is these huge trade tastings that used to go on. When you're just lost in the crowd, unless somebody is bringing a recording device or a notebook, who's going to remember you? They're going to go to the next table and the next table. Um, what, again, for our medium, we're talking about our print magazines. I think the best, our best real estate is, of course, our covers. When we do a cover story, that's the first thing anybody sees. Even the back cover ad is a great placement. But for editorial, let's find an interesting angle to talk about your wine. Let's interview your winemaker. Let's put you on a webinar where you can actually record from Puglia or you can record from the hills of Piedmont and talk to our U.S. audience and then also get an editorial of that, that webinar. Or let's take the wine taste it and send it to five different editors and have all the editors talk about what they're tasting. But it's, you know, there's an investment, you know, you've got to invest in some kind of a relationship with the magazine. I, all the reviews that I do are, are basically free. I mean, we, we charge for uh, bottle shots if somebody wants to have a bottle in there or my section in some journal, uh, it's called a Psalm jury, never charge for that. And it's, it's kind of a, a look behind the scenes of wines. So, you know, it's, it's just wonderful to have a Zoom call with an Italian winemaker and have the wine in front of me, the wine in front of them, and taste together and try to translate that into the pages of the magazine. So we're just hoping we just tell the right message. But I also think photography is important. So if that winemaker comes to New York or Chicago or Miami or wherever we have our editors, which is everywhere uh, around the U.S., isn't it great to sit down with that person and have a trade lunch and invite, you know, whether it's 10 or 15 buyers there to have that audience and then take that and their testimonials and put it in the magazine. So it's a matter of how do you want to market your wine? Talk to us. Let's brainstorm. There's no committee on my end. Let's just let's just get out there and and, and work it together. Okay, two points. One is uh, Meredith is uh, happy to share her contact information, and her email is m m a y at somjournal.com. So that's m is in Mary, m is in Mary, a y at s o m m journal.com. Tell me about how you handle tastings. Well, pre-COVID, we would uh, sit with the wine editors. Let's say it could be two, three, four, five, depending on how many I can get together. And we would taste through 10 to 15 to 20 wines. And then when, of course, it all happened, we had to divide and conquer. So there's five of us now uh, tasting. And so sparkling wine goes to one editor. I mean, we had to you know, do, do it alone. So I would take some, and then Anthony Dias Blue takes some, and I've got three other editors on East Coast, West Coast. Uh, we're going to go back to 
group tastings again soon, even, you know, slowly but surely. And now what we're doing is if the winery is okay with it, they have to just ship to, so we're not doing it together, just ship to three or four or five of us. In fact, I just talked to uh, somebody at an Italian winery who is coming out with a big anniversary wine, and we're going to do that. We're going to triple share it and compare notes, and someone's going to write the story, and then we're going to, the three of us are going to uh, collaborate on the score and the review, and we do that with our articles, too. I've got some amazing palettes out there. There's no reason to take it all by myself. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of your being able to taste all those. Granted, I've had a lot of opportunity to taste a lot of wines, but I like tasting with knowledgeable people and uh, and discussing and describing. Which is why these webinars are so good, because we're a lot of us are you know, the, the editors are tasting together while we're watching the webinar, and then one person writes it up. And uh, who are the editors that uh, you've got? I have 36 of them. Do you want me to name all of them? Oh, my God. No. <laughs> okay. Um, but one of the things um, you mentioned earlier in our, our conversation is the potential for Italian wines in what we, I hate to use the terms, but we use them called secondary and tertiary market. Not New York, not Florida, not, not Miami, not Chicago, not LA, San Francisco, and so forth. What kind of reach do you have to to those markets, and what role do you think they play? I think that's such a great question, and I would have had a different answer a year and a half ago. We were just really concentrating on the big cities, and you know, and growing and growing. But since we've been locked down and these wine shops are opening all over and now restaurants are starting to bloom in Cleveland and Charleston and Birmingham, Alabama, these, you know, I'm, I'm building Phoenix up like crazy because I think it's one of the best food cities in the country and I'm moving there a year and a half. So I think it's all the relevance in the world now because you're getting chefs leaving the big cities because the big cities are getting crazy with rules and problems and, you know, the challenges we're finding. So I think the secondary and tertiary markets are sexy. Well, I like that. That's going to be our headline. The secondary and tertiary markets are sexy. That's that, that's the headline. Yeah, it's fun to go to a new city uh, like Nashville and just eat your way through five days of amazing food. And I think they should welcome Italian wines and any of these cities because Italian wine is my first choice. And I'm not saying it because of this podcast. It's always my first choice because it's the best food pairing wine in the world. And when you say the food pairing wine, I mean, one of the key things about Italian wines is there's like over 600 indigenous varietals. When you say Italian wine, it isn't one wine. There's a gazillion of them. What are you looking for? You're looking for oral acidity. I'll find oral acidity in a big old Amarone and a bold but delicate Barolo. And, you know, my favorite, one of my favorites now is Montepulciano's and Alianico's. I mean, it's just the, they, they all have that common thread as, you know, as does my my other favorite, which is Chateauneuf de Pop from France. But I think Italian wines are still undiscovered in the U.S., especially on the West Coast, especially on the West Coast, because I know the East Coast has embraced them more uh, because we are, you know, fighting against these big, bold Napa cabs and beautiful big, bold cabs from Paso Robles. Uh, we can't really compete against the Pinots because the Pinots, you know, want that, they have that acidity. But I think Italian wines have to make that statement together in every way and 
an inch that we can take about tying in chefs in our articles or tying in food is very, very important. I think the other thing that they have is this, to call it authenticity, heritage, legacy, history. Not only are many of them in family farms that have been in generations, in some cases like Antinoid, hundreds and hundreds of maybe a thousand years, but the authenticity of that being an indigenous grape as opposed to just another expression of Cabernet Sauvignon. So there's a lot to discover. And certainly we all know that Italian food is a perfect, well, all food is a perfect accompaniment to Italian wine. Italian food is even a better perfect accompaniment to Italian wine. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, it's like, a, it's a fashion statement. Yeah. Okay, let's change to some journal. Now, um, the world of sommeliers or sommeliers, and uh, it's pronounced differently around the world, has gone through a dramatic change. I'd say before COVID, there was this thing with the, the, the Psalm series of documentaries and movies, and all of a sudden it became kind of a thing. It certainly has um, in the world of wine and the world of restaurants. And it took a huge hit in COVID. Can you talk about the role that Psalm Journal plays and where the Psalm community is going from pre-COVID to post-COVID in Europe? Yeah, I think the Psalms are having to step down from their pedestal, but that's okay because the ones that are surviving are also going into the business of wine behind the scenes at their restaurants. That means they're the general manager also that's doing inventory and having to check that bottom line. They're, you know, they're working with the chef. Uh, more. They're they're getting involved. They're hitting their hands involved in more parts of the restaurant, which makes them more valuable. So I think it's actually a cool thing because you still want to be called a psalm or sommelier because you've still got psalm foundation, master psalms, uh, and the court and WSET and... Italy International Academy. Yep. Right. And all the other valued learning areas that will not go away because education... It's number one, I think, for us, for Sound Journal. So you've got that. You still have your your educated, smart wine experts. But now they're hopefully becoming more important in their roles. Yeah, I see kind of the, it's still just the beginning stages of restaurants coming back, but a more commercial and appropriate commercial, commercial focus. So being the F&B director and not just the sommelier picking the wines, um, and responsibility for profitability. And I think that's a big point that um, the wines represent a significant um, profit category for most restaurants. And some are uniquely positioned to be able to say, okay, these represent not only a significant margin, but a unique and point of differentiation uh, to your competitive set. Mm-hmm. And no, and not that many people may in the restaurant may know what they're talking about when they go up to a table and someone says, "Can you recommend a wine?" But that psalm is still there. That person, that wine knowledgeable person, is still there to to tell a story. And stories is what it's all about. Okay, so um, you started uh, a partnership with uh, uh, Somcon in San Diego. Can you tell us a little bit of background at that? I've, I've spoken at a couple of them. We were one panel discussion with you and the, the host. Tell me how that thing's evolved and what impact it's had on the industry, certainly on the West Coast. Sure. Well, I've got to give credit to Michelle Meter and Ken Lois, the uh, founders of SOMCON. Uh, it's such a brilliant name. You know, people 
guests who've never heard it before, who heard it for the first time, you know, give a laugh because it's that comic con venue kind of thing. And and it's just, it's, people used to think Texom was the most important event of the year, but it was very hard to get in there. A lot of people couldn't, couldn't make it. Um, it was maybe a little intimidating because it was really led by master psalms and people who are just learning, you know, coming in the beginning would feel shadowed. But SomCon opens up to the whole industry and it's such a great learning venue. So we put on seminars as, as many people, uh, but we're the, we are the official media hosts of the sponsors of SomCon. And we were twice a year promoting and getting the most qualified bodies um, at these events, along with the uh, SomCon team and all these amazing volunteers who would just give their time, open hundreds of bottles of wine for each seminar, get it all just tuned right. It is it's such a great operation. I'm so proud to be part of it. Well, that's great. I, I was impressed because of the practicality of what they were talking about, uh, less about theory uh, and a lot more about service and uh, as we we're talking about the commercial value of it, making money with by selling wines and making customers happy. Right, and and we come in on the education side with our seminars, and ours are very focused with winemakers on a panel talking about from terroir to aromatherapy uh, phenomena. <laughs> I haven't tried that, but it's an interesting idea. Okay, so um, one of the other things we talked about when we were um, preparing for this was the people that you've encountered have been kind of um, a pleasure and an excitement, I think, for you. You gave me one example of Angelo Gaia, who I've had the pleasure of meeting too. Talk about when you met with him and how that's impacted you and also what other Italian producers you've met that have made an impact on you. Oh, dear. Um, well, when I met Angelo Gaia, I didn't know who he was. It was at the very beginning of my Patterson's days. And I got put in front of him gave him a magazine, took a photo of him reading the, the uh, Patterson's at the time. And uh, that was before social media. But we put it in the magazine and it was it got a lot of good feedback from that. You know, Tony Trilato, who is not an Italian wine producer, is such a pro, he was such a pro Italian uh, distributor, importer. He was one of the most influential people actually uh, in my career. He was the first to grace the New Psalm Journal cover, and I'll never forget that. Oh, there have been so many people that I've met, nobody who has specifically mentored me, but I hired a man named Lars Light, who used to work for Banfi Vintners for 30 years plus, and he is not only fluent in Italian, travels there at least once a month, but handle all the liaisons with the Italian wine industry for a publication. So I guess he has become one of the most important and influential people in the on the Italian side. Uh, and I met him 20 years ago, so that that was a long, a long relationship. Um, I'll be doing uh, an interview with Barbara Widmer, who is the winemaker for Il Brancaia. Uh, I'm very excited about that. We've had um, Pio Cesare. Uh, you know, you know, wines and, and featured the Cesare family on our covers. So uh, I'm blessed. 
you know, I'm blessed to, to have met so many wonderful people. Have you been to Vin Italy or Stevie Kim's Wine to Wine yet? No, but I send people. See, I, I send the right people to the right events, uh, people who are more valuable to go and taste and talk to people and write about the wines. I, do you think you'll ever go? I don't know if I'll go to a big trade tasting. I don't think I'm valuable there. I think for me, my dream would be to more, be at a more relaxing, going from winery to winery and making personal visits and, and doing writing a kind of a road trip story. A question on the magazine side of things, and it's, it's, it's kind of a loaded question. It's the first question that we get asked by any importer or distributor, you got scores. What do you think about the role of scores on the trade side, not consumer side? Let's narrow it to that. And their relative importance in really the success or failure of, of wines commercially in the U.S. Well, I, I have to tell you my opinion because, you know, there's so many naysayers about scores. And, of course, some buyers don't want to hear it. Just like uh, when I go to a trade tasting and somebody says, oh, yeah, we got a 95 from Wine Spectator. Well, you don't say that to someone from some journal or tasting panel. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Why is that news to people? Why is that a surprise that they, they don't recognize that they're competing publications? <laughs> it's just, it's beyond me. But we, I receive over 250 wines a month to taste and score. And people are happy to pay me to do it. I don't always want to be paid to do it. But there's some times where, you know, someone wants to taste 25 wines. Well, I'm going to have to, there's going to have to be some kind of something. So people want scores. Uh, we are now, tasting panels now signed up with a, a multitude of venues who are using our scores for shelf talkers. So that increases the, uh, the asks from the wines. So they must be pretty darn important because the, the growth has been exponential. I mean, I used to get, you know, maybe 50 wines a month, which I thought was a lot. And now it's, you know, it's just increased so much. People want those scores. It takes up a lot of my time. What do you do with all the cardboard? It's an issue, isn't it? Right? <laughs> we have to find the recycle places. And I'm trying to share that. So think of 250 just for me. And then I'm sharing it with at least four other editors. Uh, yeah, a message to everyone out there. My personal one is don't use peanuts. <laughs> peanuts are a real problem <laughs> right no peanuts and and don't send duplicates that's the other thing it takes a lot of space if a wine is bad i'll let you know but don't send duplicates yeah but but you know i'm i find myself you know nights and weekends because i like to drink the wine with a meal i don't just sit there and taste it uh, unless I'm working with a group. If I'm tasting with a group, then maybe we won't, maybe we'll have cheese and crackers. But if I'm asked to really write about something, consider it, I, I, I always, especially if I'm mine, is that on its own changes something. One of the things I learned early on, um, you probably remember Philip de Bellardino, who used to also work at Banffy and also at Palace Brands, which is when I knew him 30 some odd years ago. He's passed since, but he was always wonderful about that. And uh, he was one of the uh, proponents of uh, a lesson I learned, which is um, sell on cheese, buy on bread. That cheese coats the palate, um, whereas bread cleanses the palate, and you get a much more accurate tasting note. You taste people on cheese, and everything tastes wonderful. 
taste people love bread. It's like crackers without salt, you know, salt, saltless saltines. Anyway, um, what's the big takeaway from our conversation here? Is there one thing, a thought, a trend, a philosophy that someone who may be listening, um, and most of the people who are listening are, are in the trade, in the U.S., in fact, that they can put to use immediately from having listened to our conversation? I think the most important thing is that even if your wine tastes incredibly wonderful and your packaging is superlative, it doesn't mean you'll make a penny because you've got too much competition out there. And it's sad because everything's still coming out of the woodworks, you know, whether it's wine or tequila or whiskey, it's just flooded. and you need to know how to get to the right people and it it doesn't happen overnight and there's it's a big big world out there a big country here so i i my heart goes out to people who put their blood sweat and tears into their brands into their wines uh, and i want to help them I, I i really do i i i wish that i had a even you know i wish i had a magic touch that would really elevate. Um, but the best thing I can do is send out free magazines to a million people a year, which we're doing, and hope it continues and, and hope we're helping sell bottles. Yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, the, the old joke is, what's the best bottle of wine? It's the one I just sold. <laughs> so uh, a big uh, thank you to uh, Meredith May. Uh, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher at Psalm Journal and Tasting Panel. Meredith, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. A little bit of a catharsis, but thank you. <laughs> okay. Hopefully we'll see each other somewhere in the world sometime soon. I hope so. Thank you. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.